0: My name's Sophie Scott.
1: And I'm Will Eaves.
0: And together we are the Neuromantics. I am a brain scientist, a cognitive neuroscientist, and I study how human brains support communication. And
1: I am a novelist and poet, and I do all the aforementioned things in the guise of fiction.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And in the Neuromantics, we try and uh, communicate about communication across our disciplines. Will, Gives me something to read and I give him something to read. He gets to read a scientific paper. I normally get to read an excellent book or some fabulous poetry. I definitely get the better end of the deal here. (laughs) And today we're going to be talking inadvertently about links and social contact and mothers.
1: These things and how often traumatic experiences get passed down the generations. I think we'll start with the scientific paper Mm. because that'll give us a a lot of data but also some good metaphors. (laughs) For moving on to the wonderful story by Andrea Levy that we're also going to look at. But the scientific paper is called Maternal Death and Offspring Fitness in Multiple Wild Primates.
0: So one of the things that um, drew me to this paper is uh, I've been thinking a lot about being a mammal. You know, we're apes, but we're mammals. And there are some interesting things about mammals. And one of the things, interesting things about mammals is we have this very extended period of being infants and juveniles, and for a great deal of that period, we are highly dependent, and I'm talking as mammals, across the whole world of mammals, we're very dependent on our mothers because we nurse with our mother, and that's, again, that's completely unusual in nature, and lots of other aspects about our mother's sort of uh, care for us will have a really big effect on our ability to stay alive and to grow. So there's a well-established and not particularly pleasing to think about uh, very negative effect on infants if their mother dies while they're still an infant. and that's across all mammals. And this paper is asking something slightly different. So that's been very well established. That's not a a matter for debate. In this paper, what they're asking is what's the the bigger picture of maternal health and the well-being of offspring over a longer time scale? So they ask a couple of different questions. And they've done this with this wonderful... uh, There's a great big database of... um, Sort of the lives of primates, which they've gone out but straight off to the internet and tried to log into this database. And you can't just log into it, you have to be a member. Yaboo. Yeah, but um, it was so what they they're, they it's all the data that's already been collected. And what they've done is across a number of different primate species, they've asked questions about what's the relationship between what happens to offspring and their mother's death in the years up to the mother's death. And what they find is that offspring are more likely to die, infants are more likely to die if they are born in a period close to what's about to happen, which is the mother's about to pass away. And they talk about the reasons why that might be. And there there might be things like, well, the the age of the mother might influence things and they control for that. And there might be shared genetic issues. They, They try and control for aspects of that. But there seems to be something about if you're born into a you're born to a mother who's already, maybe her health is struggling, then that is not good for you as offspring. And then the other question they ask is that if you go down a generation, so now you look at the offspring that do survive the death, the early death of a mother, what happens to their offspring? And they find that, so this kind of like grandparental role, there are fewer offspring for the children or the daughters of mothers who've died when they were young. And this is, again, across primates. That seemed to suggest that there's some, there's a cost, there's a real cost to not having that extended contact with your mother, for these female um, primates. That then consequently has a knock-on effect on what happens to their offspring, how they are able to be a mother.
1: It's a completely fascinating paper, uh, and to begin with, I felt that uh, I struggled really to to with with the sort of logic of the question that was partly being asked, which was. How can it be the case that the, um, the child's survival rates are, uh, you know, are affected or the, or, or the likelihood of survival depreciates um, if the mother's facing impending death? How would you know that? Until it was pointed out you know to me that of course it's really to do with we sort of to do with two things. One is the condition of the mother mm-hmm. uh, uh, which invites us to suppose that she may be ill, she may have a disease or. Or she may, there's, it's not just that she's old. In fact, they think that doesn't really have an effect, because as mm. you said, the control for that. But that she may, she may be struggling with something else. And part of what that adult female might be struggling with is an inherited long-term thing to do with her own experience yeah. as a child. And once it's cast in those terms, it becomes, it must be said, and I don't think I'm anthropomorphizing, it becomes extremely human as well. Mm. One, one senses that one is looking at oneself suddenly as a primate. Yeah. Because it made me think of the Larkin poem, you know, man hands on misery to man. It deepens like a coastal shelf. And the sense that there may be a behavioural genetic component to this or the experience of trauma then, as it were, gets into the bones, if yeah. you like. And, and become something that's passed on m- made me sort of think again. And I wanted to ask you, I know this is a broad question, but actually it exposes my ignorance of genetics, but how does the behavioural experience in quite short time frames there, just a few generations, become inheritable?
0: There's a lot of interest in this in um in my field at the moment because people have have got very interested in the idea that you can have sort of epigenetic effect so things that your genetic um your genetic inheritance interacts with your environment and not just in a straight down the line nature and nurture mixed together but you could have you know quite some some quite specific things could be happening and people got very interested in that in terms of trauma which is not very far away from what you're describing i think the jury is still out for what the mechanisms could be but i think even if it's not a straight down the line, genetic story, although there will always be a contribution from that. We have these patterns that are, as you say, that it's handed on across generations, and you're always growing up in what feels like your whole world to you, which but which is a world that's been completely coloured by the experiences your parents had when they were growing up and what they think is normal or what they're trying not to do or what they're trying to avoid doing what they you know all the things that might have really profoundly affected them and and damaged them and so you've got this um sort of unavoidable fact that we I mean we know again we know this human human brains don't work out of the box we have this very even compared to other primates and other mammals a really really extended period of being young infants and juveniles and adolescents when our brains are still developing and we are growing up in this social world and the and the very particular social world of the family and the way that that is interacting with your your own sort of you being you obviously you are your own individual you've got your own distinct genetic profile but that's you're still growing up in that place there are those things around you it's um I spent the weekend very unusually for me with my mother and my brother and my sister And afterwards, my my partner was going, oh, can I just talk about this? (laughs) Because all this stuff starts making more sense about families when you see people in those situations, which, you know, you kind of think, well, obviously, I'm I'm not like that anymore. I'm a totally different person. But you're back in that situation. You start to go back into those roles and those things start to influence you again. and And you're never really free of them. Now, it's not that we can't all be our own person. And it's definitely not the case that you don't have... But like having a terrible trauma in, you know, in in infancy, in childhood, in your family, isn't it's not doesn't mean to say that no one can ever get past that. People can and they do, but these kind of bigger bigger patterns, I guess, they're made more manifest for the for the non-human primates they're studying in this paper because they really are living on the edge, and when they don't have you know certain structures in place like your mother being around then that's pretty that's pretty grim that's not going to work out yeah. you're you're, work more, out. you're
1: you're more open to predation exactly. your you know your your own you know that coping skills and, yeah. and uh, may not be fully developed
0: so you you end up with something that's more cut and dried because it's terribly harsh and yeah. awful and
1: and that will only get worse now in reduced habitats
0: Exactly, exactly. And because we have, on the whole, certainly, you know, there are more safety nets for humans that humans have put in place. You're looking at things that might be more, you know, maybe less clear and terrible, but nonetheless devastating and have a lifelong kind of influence. And we're still struggling with how to get to grips with that, really. Sometimes it's because we're so close to it. It's hard to imagine, you know, it's it's, it's, it's obvious that your parents matter. It's obvious that your mother matters. And so we don't look at the mechanics of it as much, unless you're a Freudian. They were always we've kind of so we kind of reacted so much against that that we sort of refused to engage with it when we're thinking about it as non-Freudians.
1: The interesting thing that they touch on in this paper, which perhaps is an avenue for it seemed to me for further research, is the behaviour of the animal, I think both the mother and the offspring, when there is a traumatic loss, when when one or the other dies. And what seems to happen is that the animal retreats, Mm. and either goes AWOL and leaves the group, or wanders, or, or becomes sort of, as we would say, depressive, one has to be careful about using those terms if you're talking about another species but their whole affect you know becomes Mm. much more inward um but quite often the animal simply absents itself draws apart from the group doesn't want to join in which has implications for learning socialization and reproduction
0: and and health straight down health health. Yeah.
1: yeah yeah it made me think about the experience of grief for an animal Mm. that where the whole raison d'etre is to do, you know, with the, you know, the member of the the flange or the whoop or whatever it might be as being so much more bonded to that group, even than we are uh, in our, in our high functioning cognitive way. You know, Mm. we have this illusion of being rather more sort of independent from quite an early age. And, uh, and, and and this gives the light of all that because, it seems to be that one of the things that you can say across all primates, one of the defining problems and difficulties of trauma and grief is the way it makes you aware of your insufficiency as an individual. Mm. That as an individual, you realise how vulnerable you are. There's something in this about the affect, the feeling yeah. of vulnerability
0: yeah.
1: that rather than taking you to the group to solve that takes you away from it that seems to be that's a terribly unscientific way of putting it but there seems to be some sense of when you tend the wound in order to heal you have to sort of as it were turn yourself in the direction of the thing that is doing you harm Mm -hmm. in order to understand
0: it i mean again this is an anecdote not data but a few years ago a very very dear friend died very suddenly i mean really like went to bed died and so not ill, nothing, and um, and I got the news, and it was at a time when I was getting obsessed, we started getting all these like gadgets, and you could use your phone to measure your heart rate, and I kept measuring my heart rate, and I noticed that immediately after this news, and for the next week, my heart rate was routinely much higher than usual, no matter what I was doing, it was about 10 beats per minute higher, which is unusual, and then I realised this because I was scared. Mm. I was experiencing profound grief but mixed up in that was absolute terror something can come and it can take you yeah and that would say it's an incredibly basic thing and Mortal it's not terror. absolutely sort of you know horrific and in addition to the fact that the person it's taken is someone that you thought you would have the rest of your life to be friends with and um it was it was I'd never thought about it that way but it's a, you know this so, we, we think of grief as being like this unitary phenomenon but it's there's desperate loss, there's absolute fear. And I think there's a really, the thing that we're describing when we describe loss, when the way people talk about it is often actually cognitive, like you can't remember, you can't read books, Mm. you can't do the things, your brain's not working the same way. And I think there is something, again, in this Freudian notion of objects, which are in Freudian terminology, they're the people in your world that matter to you, that they're not abstract from your mental capacity for a better phrase they are part of it they're kind of part of the fundamentals of your understanding of the world includes these people yeah yeah that's you know we've talked they're not external (laughs) (laughs) external and they're um you know we've talked about the importance of the social networks and i think it's important all the way through to it's actually being internalized as part of your kind of they, you know I can, I can I can I can understand the world because these things are true and some of the things that are true are the people. I and think that's true, learn.
1: but I think also what the really deranging thing about it is that the people the objects have an order. they have a kind of hierarchy and that is partly given by time and generations. So so-and-so is old and they're my parent and they look after me. Um, my sibling is younger and mm-hmm. they come second and a lot of the kind of psychodynamic, Things that Freud is talking about are questions about order and how we stratify mm-hmm. our experience of time at a very personal level. And if your if your mother goes when you're very very young, you haven't had yet had time mm. to reach what we might call a rational understanding of lifespans and what sort of mm. what sort of you know experience you can reasonably expect to have. So you don't have the chance to create an intelligible order of events and people, stroke objects. I think that there's something about the natural order is inverted or lost in some way. And there's, if, it, if it happens too soon, it's very hard then for that child to refabricate it. Mm-hmm. Unless, and this is something that the authors say, unless you, you, you belong to a particular set of primate groups and gorillas are one unit... And humans are another, uh, which are sort of—they're um, not hyper-social, but, they're, but they're, their particular grasp of socialisation is that people can take on maternal roles, yeah. even if they're not mothers, and and and, and not even female. Indeed, yeah. allo-maternal allocation, as I think it's called in, yeah. in this paper, and of course that made me think about you know a lot of what's been happening over the last twenty years, particularly in parenting rights. In various countries, here yeah. sort of bringing up children. If you if 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 it's a, you know, a, a, there's a non-binary component in the in the family, or if it's two gay men, mm. whatever it might be, or two women, and all the evidence seems to be that the children of those units do very well. actually. <laughs> fine.
0: If, yeah. if anything, do somewhat better. But it's yeah. interesting.
1: Why? I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm suppose I'm just asking. Yeah. Uh, what is it then? What is the sort of difference between the the quite well developed primate groups that don't have that and mm. the ones that do?
0: It's a good question. And I think you, you got to it when you mentioned the fact that there's, some, there's a kind of a possibility of abstracting away to some bigger sense of some sense of almost responsibility, like um, elements of some kind of morality. Yeah. You know, that you need to, this is, this is a, a, a helpless person, an infant or child who without, without us doing something will die because their main caretaker isn't here. So, so we have to do something. And that kind of s- not just because primates live in intensely social groups, but the, what drives that social group is a very, very strict hierarchy of sort of where you fit in there. And gorillas and humans seem to be able to say, well, just for a second, I'm going to step out of that. Mm. We're going to do things differently while we need to. Now, don't run away with the idea that everything's different. You know, I'm still in charge, but this is how we're doing it now. Mm. You know, just, they're sufficiently nuanced. They can permit some flexibility. I suspect
1: is that just to do with straightforward brain size and adaptability or is it is it is it a, is it a function of behavioral you know uh, evolution
0: well I mean I think Robin Dunbar has always argued that you can fairly easily map the complexity of social networks onto brain size yeah. onto the neocortex but you do it can't be the whole neocortex there's lots mm. Yeah, cortex. So you know maybe some particular brain areas are particularly important and maybe that is something that starts to make a qualitative difference about humans and gorillas compared to well, even chimps.
1: incredibly thought-provoking paper and it did make me think a lot about my own familial experience actually and and and, you know particularly that of my of my mother I mean I wonder if some of this can be extended even beyond in quite long-lived species like like relatively long-lived species like humans you know my my mum had uh, she had four children but she also she lost almost as many children, mm-hmm. you know, um, two in utero, a couple of uh, miscarriages, and towards the end of her life, when she was, you know, she she had um, Alzheimer's, she remained quite sort of. My feeling about Alzheimer's is often that it 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 seems to, I think there does seem to be experiential evidence. This from a lot of people I've spoken to, is that it, it seems to fix qualities uh, of character uh in some, it seems to strip away a lot of the performative stuff mm. th- with which you know people successfully <laughs> disguise their <laughs> their innermost feelings and it, and it reveals something quite inherent about their
0: yeah.
1: um attitudinal you know makeup and, and in my mother's case it was a sort of very gentle melancholy that got revealed mm. um and very, very thing with very, very deep roots. I think which went back to the, the loss of these children, and I think e- even her children. And she loved us all dearly. That didn't compensate for a very, very profound sense of loss, which I think she felt as failure. Mm. Partly because of the way you were treated, if you you know you had a miscarriage or if you had stillbirths in the yeah. you know, in the in the fifties, you know you were you were treated appallingly.
0: Yeah. You know, just,
1: put into a room and that was it Um,
0: yeah
1: yeah. that experience of seeing a parent go through something over their life where you you know that they are at times unapproachable Mm. that they've sort of gone somewhere else rather like Mm. the kind of primates that they've just simply backed off from you Mm. and from everyone I mean maybe she was depressed it was never really diagnosed but I guess she was Uh, I think does, I can see that it has a profound effect Mm. on you. I mean, I've always, not in a morbid sense, but I've carried that with me, that sense of, well, it's always an option just to retreat from the world, Mm. just to go into the mental room next door and absent myself from other people. And it, it may be necessary to do that. That isn't an inheritance exactly it's it's an observed response yeah but really what's the difference between an observed response that's replicated in a chain yeah. and an inherited
0: yeah.
1: behavior
0: yeah well no functionally there's not going to be much difference at all it's like a events that can just cast this shadow long after the events themselves but in terms of someone's you know the, how, the effect it's had on a person and then. Exactly like you say that your experience of having a parent who was sometimes just somewhere else because she's yeah. dealing with something unimaginable, which you don't understand. You're a no. child. You're a son.
1: You're. And it's interesting that you don't actually. This is an interesting thing about we think about grief being such a sort of you know it is it, it, by definition it's an incredibly personal inward you know uh, first person point of view experience. But what I'm describing actually is is seeing someone else do so i'm i'm only really seeing the behavioral cues mm. as i think i've referred to them before you know and uh, that's enough mm. for me to actually feel well reproduce some of the behavior mm. and perhaps feel some of the same things i don't know yeah. i mean you, you can't really tell. It's, these these are muddy waters in terms of the relationship between the behavior and the, and the felt experience
0: So many things that you learn to do when you're growing up. What a really important one is how do I manage my mood? Because we can't just all the time be acting out everything we feel as we feel it, and you know, you're and actually, there's a lot of different ways you can regulate emotions, and you very rarely do it just on your own. Actually, it's normally something that people kind of negotiate with the people around them. There was some interesting stuff from a guy in um, America looking at this, Robert Levinson comparing, maybe we can look at the paper, but he was comparing, he was looking at couples. It's a very heteronormative study. The couples were all straight and he was studying them for years, all married people from the community. And he would put them in stressful situations um, and then look at how they coped with the stressful situation. And what he found was that there were not only different emotional outcomes. So if you deal with a stressful situation between the two of you by using aggression that will close down the interaction. No one feels less stressed. Mm-hmm. Or passive mm-hmm. aggression. Again, it'll close down the interaction. Nobody feels less stressed. Positive emotions like laughter and smiling, which often involve a kind of like a face-saving, or, or right then, you know, but I'll go along with it. And they, they tend to make people feel better. Now, those are all things people learn to do. We learn how to manage our emotions and how to actually negotiate changes in mood with people around us. And that's one of the, one of the many, many things we learn from our parents, is actually how, how to do that.
1: Yeah, I think it's an interesting the way you describe that. I mean, I, I think that's absolutely true. Uh, I, I also sort of suspect that that kind of compensatory, the barter of face-saving and, uh, and, as it were, almost affecting a better mood or introducing yeah. laughter in order to deal with something terrible, uh, I think absolutely it does work. But I think your partner in that, the other person has to show evidence of being able to do the same thing. Yeah. I think if it comes from... If it's if one person feels they're the only one doing that, yeah. they are, as it were, being the clown or... I mean, yeah. that's putting it too overtly, but you know, they are the one who are make They're making the accommodation and other people are making less of an accommodation. I think that's difficult. And, and of course, you do find that in families, that someone makes more of an effort than someone else. Yeah. And that can be tricky, I
0: think. And, in fact, like, just going very briefly back to Robert Levinson's stuff, that's exactly what he finds... The positive emotion way of dealing with a difficult situation like laughter and smiling only works if both people do it. Yeah, yeah. If only one person do it does it, no one yeah, feels yeah. better. But you're right, it is it's very interesting when you take it back into families because you will see the same things going on. And who does and who doesn't but appear, you know, it will how people are using the techniques and how that is then perceived, even just for something like how do we manage a, a slightly tricky situation. It has there's there's something kind of untrammeled about the emotions I feel around family. Like there's no I can get like immediately, instantly, ragingly cross in a way I never normally do, and like and, and I think because it is just very basic at some level, it's also reflecting the cognitions of someone who's still effectively six, which mm. is in certain situations. <laughs> <laughs> was, yeah. Um, well, especially grown-up six, but that's but that's of course that's true for everybody. And there's yeah. and again it it speaks to a lot of this kind of lack of. Um, because it's, you're so close and they're so big and so such huge factors and if you order as you say the relationships in your life the the, the objects in your mental experience the big ones are the ones that come first and they are the, the they're the ones that have sort of set the frame around which other stuff's built so it's very hard to see them it's like you stop tasting water or smelling the air that's that's the thing that you're in
1: political colours. I, I, I regard the current, you know, operations of our, our senior administrators in the government with considerable dismay. Uh, but it seems to me that the, the, the cabinet in many ways, it, it more than usually seems to be rather like a dysfunctional family in which no one is making any compensatory manoeuvres that allows this group of extremely powerful people To make sensible decisions, Mm. or to compute the trauma of the last two years, Um, that it's like looking at a group of exquisitely selfish six-year-olds with no (laughs) with no adult present. There are no
0: grown-ups.
1: There (laughs) are no to, you know, to facilitate this kind of understanding of the order of mental objects and and the, um, and the and the passage of grief and, and. perhaps because <laughs> perhaps because they don't understand. that's that's not an emotion that's understood i don't know <laughs> but it does seem to be like a kind of it's almost a zombie family isn't it i mean i'm sort of making a slightly serious point here is that you don't you don't sense in, in the middle of trauma you don't sense that any of the people here have any understanding mm. of that it's not it doesn't seem to be real for them
0: or if it is real, it's not. It's impossible to acknowledge it. There's no yeah. way you can sort of... Exactly, face-saving, you can't. You've got to be operating on some other level. It's, it's, it is deeply strange. I, the other thing you just made me think of then was, um, I remember reading a book when I was an undergraduate student, arguing quite well that there is a strong relationship between um, political leaders and losing a parent when you are very young. Very, very common. Bill Clinton, um, Tony Blair didn't lose a parent, but his father was very handicapped by a stroke when he was young. And it's, mm. it, there's a, there, there's, it's actually it running higher, statistically higher than, than other occupations. And there's maybe the sort of the flip side of what we're seeing, you know, this resilience thing, the people.
1: I think it works the other way around too. I yeah. think there's, there's, there's also quite a strong correlation between, um, politicians and highly dependent children, um, who've got, you know, who need a lot of care. Yeah. Um, that's true of the Camerons, I think. It's interesting how it kind of feeds back into,
0: yeah. the, the, sort into of the the article. The things that give you trajectories in your life that you know, you may get some awareness of it when you look back and you only know it looking back. You can't see it when it's happening.
1: Which is the subject, it in a way, of this uh, short story to sort of make a, a, a night's move into the fictional text we're going to look at, which is by... Uh, a, a wonderful writer uh it's now sadly no longer with us Andrea Levy um I'm not quite sure the year she died it's about 10 years ago so maybe slightly more Andrea Levy her parents came over on well one of her parents her father came over on the Windrush um, boat in 1948 from Jamaica uh and her mother came over I think later that year on another um banana producer's boat and she grew up in North London, and she was a fair skinned um, um, Caribbean of Caribbean descent. And she talks um, in a beautiful essay that she wrote for the uh, British Library Archives about the relationship between class in Jamaica and being re- fair skinned, and her experience uh, growing up in north london and the sort of shame about being black and not being schooled in an avoidance of heritage Mm. so that at a kind of extraordinary moment when she was a young woman and working on a sex education project in islington you know she the 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 facilitators of the of the project asked um, people to identify as black and white and move to one side of the room accordingly and she Began to move to um the the white corner side until her colleagues and peers sort of <laughs> beckoned her. <laughs> actually just waved her back out back side. And she says amazingly, she says that, you know, it was incre- it was well, it was a turning point for her as a writer. It was a point at which she was beginning to write, but it was also deeply disturbing for her. she said she took to her bed for a week. Yeah. So that was, that's the non-fiction essay uh, and I think it underpins in a way the story I've chosen, which is called Loose Change. This too is about being schooled in shame
0: mm-hmm.
1: and what it can do, not just to your sense of self, but to your relationships with other people and how it can hobble your understanding of other people, reduce your compassion not necessarily because you are a less compassionate person but because you are to bring back mortal terror into the equation but because you are scared Mm -hmm. and it's a story about unfamiliarity and i think what she does without ever you know knocking you over the head with it is she she makes the point again and again dramatically that most forms of prejudice and I would include in this sort of sexual prejudice and gender prejudice as well as racial prejudice, although one doesn't want to kind of lump them together too much, but they are to do with unfamiliarity. Mm. They are to do with lack of experience and exposure or only seeing things uh, in quite an abstract way and not having personal engagement or friendships or, you know, living in a community with other black people or other you know races and ethnicities and gen and you know non-binary genders Loose change is about a woman and you're not even really aware until two-thirds of the way story that it is a sort of avatar for andrea herself that Mm -hmm. it's a, a black woman who is caught short on a very very cold day she's having a period and she dives into the national portrait gallery um because she needs to buy some sanitary towels and, and, go, and go to the toilet. And, she, and she's in there, and um, she hasn't got the change. So she just calls out from her, you know, from the locker, from the toilet store, she says, um, has anyone got, you know, three 20-pence pieces? And the only other person's one is this, is this woman of indefinable age who has a bag of loose change and doesn't speak English and is, it turns out, from Uzbekistan and has just managed to escape what was then a highly authoritarian country and um, wants, you know, to help herself but can't communicate Mm. fully and is also herself, it turns out, in distress. And the whole thing becomes a very, very beautiful thumbnail allegory of the relationship between different generations of immigrants and their sense of habituation to a place and the way they can expect to be treated Mm. it's six pages long and all of that is in there a remarkable story and it has a very i'm not sure whether i should sort of spoil entirely the conclusion the conclusion is so important i'm going to try and get round it by explaining Mm -hmm. some of what happens but she takes the three 20 pence pieces from the uzbek lady and she says to her i will i've only got a 10 pound note um i will pay you back Mm -hmm. Uh, she takes the ten shillings pieces, goes, turns her back, goes back, gets the sanitary towels, does what she has to do. When she comes out of the locker, the Uzbek lady has gone with her bag of money, She's, and that is a crucial moment because it's about how if you if you've reached a certain level of uh, I don't really want to say privilege; it's too broad a word, but a certain level of Financial stability, if you like, uh, and belonging. Thereby, you can afford to defer. You can afford to defer your responsibility for acts like borrowing yeah. and exchange to a later point. Mm-hmm. And how, if you've got nothing, you can't. Yeah. All you have is the moment. All you have is the bag of loose change. And how easy it is to sort of skate over that mm. once you've assumed a level of, uh, you know. Um, you think of it as a sort of natural autonomy, but actually it's an autonomy granted to you by certain privileges and certain yeah. financial... Um, certitudes, yeah, needed,
0: certitudes. Yeah, certitudes yeah. and yeah. status. Yeah.
1: But she finds the Uzbek lady again in the gallery and they go for a cup of tea together. And so she buys her a cup of tea and, and, and gives back these 3 20-pence pieces. But you sense that actually it's sort of too late.
0: Yeah.
1: She took something because she could without really any known guarantee of, of from the Uzbek lady that she would get it back. Mm. And then when she does give it back, she is, and again, Levy does this without really saying it, she's hamstrung by a sort of sense of resentment and guilt mm. because she's giving back the thing she's taken too late. Yeah. Which is about the colonial relationship, really. You know, how do you... How do you make a reparation
0: mm.
1: when time has gone by and you don't really want to think about yeah. actually what you've done in the last 300 years? Mm. What, what, would it mean, what would it look like? And I think she's a brilliant writer because all of that is there, but on a micro, 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 micro scale. But it's beautifully delineated. It's mm. very, very clearly done. Oh, I loved it. Anyway,
0: I lo- there's a- again without giving away the end there's a really there's a bit where she's sort of imagining herself doing something very good that that kind of that's that was really human in that it's very recognizable that kind of um trying out different possibilities in which you always do pretty well you know it's a very marked bias in human reasoning is that we, when we think about ourselves we tend to imagine ourselves being pretty good at stuff and doing things pretty well and it's and it's it's belied by a lot of other things that are happening in the story that was really kind of it It lands on a lot of very truthy psychological well you
1: tell yourself a certain story in order to get out of the situation you actually find yourself in
0: yeah and it I would have done that good thing
1: yeah and if and if you can sort of tell it if you can if you can tell the story mentally it's almost as if you've done it
0: yeah yeah
1: even when you're doing something quite different (laughs) yes uh, and one of the ways she does it actually is by thinking about generations. So she thinks about her grandmother's story. Shall I read that bit? Because it's, it's not quite yeah. at the end, but it's but it's rather good. Apologies if you hear my turning over the page here. So she's part of her sort of resentment at this point, she's wondering why she, she she's she's manifesting her sort of awkwardness at this encounter by thinking, why is the Uzbek lady picked on me? <laughs> 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 As if she's the sort of victim, which Again, is, uh, is something that Levy talks about in non nonfiction essay about the sense of embarrassment that her mother had about um, other Caribbean uh, migrants, I't being noisy in a public place or being on the bus. you know, she wishes they wouldn't sort of make such a lot of noise or draw attention to themselves. Uh, and It's the same idea of, mm. of being one of the things that internalized shame does is it turns you into a victim in inappropriate circumstances. Mm. I didn't know anything about people in her situation. Didn't they have to go somewhere? Croydon, was it? Couldn't she have gone to the police or some charity? My life was hard enough without this stranger tramping through it. She smelt of mildewed washing. Imagine her dragging that awful stink into my kitchen, cupping her filthy hands around my bone china, smearing my white linen her big face with its pantomime eyebrows leering over my son, slumping onto my sofa and kicking off her muddy boots as she yanked me down into her particular hell. How would I ever get rid of her? You know where is Tower Bridge? Perhaps there was something tender-hearted in my face. When my grandma first came to England from the Caribbean, she lived through days as lonely and cold as an open grave. The story she told all her grandchildren was about the stranger who woke her while she was sleeping in a doorway and offered her a warm bed for the night. It was this act of benevolence that kept my grandmother alive. She was convinced of it, her good Samaritan. Is something wrong? the girl was asking. Now my grandmother talks with passion about scrounging refugees, those asylum seekers who can't even speak the language, storming the country and making it difficult for her and everyone else. Last week, she began, her voice quivering, I was in home. This was embarrassing. I couldn't turn the other way. The girl was staring straight at me. This day, Friday, she went on, I cook fish for my mother and brother. The whites of her eyes were becoming soft and pink. She was going to cry. This day, Friday, I am here in London, she said, and I worry I will not see my mother again. Only a savage would turn away when it was merely kindness that was needed. I resolved to help her. I had three warm bedrooms, one of them empty. I would make her dinner, fried chicken or maybe poached fish and wine. I would run her a bath filled with bubbles, wrap her in thick towels heated on a rail. I would then hunt out some warm clothes and after I'd put my son to bed, I would make her cocoa. We would sit and talk. I would let her tell me all that she had been through. Wipe her tears and assure her that she was now safe. I would phone a colleague from school and ask him for advice. Then, in the morning, I would take her to wherever she needed to go. And before we said goodbye, I would press my phone number.
0: Homeostasis matters from the classic Freudian perspective, when you're trying to defend the the kind of the the, the ego as a way of maintaining homeostasis. But yeah. that that still that still stands. So people, we do that. We tend to we think we're better than everybody else at doing things like driving. We're statistically we're most likely to be average, you know. Yeah. And and fascinatingly, when people misremember things, which we do misremember a lot. It almost always involves us misremembering things such that we come out better. Yeah. Or it's more interesting. We've talked so, about know, that in yeah. memory dynamics
1: before. Yeah. It's true.
0: So there, it's it kind of you know to so here, this this the sort of an imagined world in which I'm doing things well, I'm being. A, I mean
1: that has an interesting uh, there's a kind of wider again for a, a super egotistical relationship to that too because it's sort of what it's what class does on a wider scale isn't it, that you, that you imagine because you, and, it, and maybe unconscious, but it's an extremely powerful thing. If, if your surrounding environment tells you, are, tells you that you're of a certain status, mm-hmm. then that becomes um, real for you and that becomes the sort of benchmark. Uh, regardless of your objective awareness of poverty elsewhere and even greater rich, mm-hmm. riches, your environment, as you say, becomes the homeostatic one. The interesting thing is that the experience of Andrew Levy's parents and of many other people who were middle class in Jamaica being taken out of that environment and coming to England was, of course, one where that status is completely disrupted mm. and overturned, and that you, you, they suddenly become what seems like a, a given. That's how we always sort of experience class. Is actually terribly fragile mm. and provisional construction and is to do with external factors yes uh, yeah. and once those people are transplanted and, and brought to England, um, something else obtains and, and really, as a, as a marxist, marxist would would say, I think, you know the story there of class. It is not the story of group identity. It's the story of power,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and power, oft, usually, exists at one remove. And as soon as you think you've identified where your source of power and stability it is, and that's what when you're sort of nice and comfortable middle class, you think, oh well, it's here, and it's mm-hmm. you know, and I have a certain amount of wherewithal because I have this job and because I have this house and because I have you know people around me. But in actual fact, you can be certain then that the real So so the thing that's making all that possible has gone elsewhere.
0: So I we didn't set out to do two papers on mothers and caring and trauma and loss. Yeah. But we did. I don't know if it's been that kind of year again. Yeah. Um, But there were some very interesting parallels. So I thought the other thing that kind of just seemed like a really interesting synchrony between the two papers was this like, just like the screaming importance of contact and care and one how to help would be to take care. She imagines herself helping by doing something for the girl. Yeah. She doesn't imagine herself helping by going to the police or something like that. So it's a it's such a it's such an interesting kind of um again, not really often articulated. Okay, here's something else I was reading that I was thinking, you know, the government were like, Oh, we can hug again, or oh, we're going to be able to hug and um then you know, let's not think about what Mac Hancock was doing when we couldn't hug, but that's, you know, the kind yeah. of, you know, the, the bigger narrative though. And people say, well, what does hugs matter? And I was doing some reading around this. Um, and there is a really interesting finding, which is that people are quite good at expressing emotions through touch, that we are not good at expressing through talking and, you know, and, and facial expressions. So, um, we're much better expressing things like gratitude and compassion, and care, and conciliation, consolation, and love through touch, than we are with our faces or our voices. And that kind of I think brings us right back to you know that's that's why when you when we think about looking after someone, what we mean is something you know physically close, mm. wrapping her up in the blanket, mm. making her comfortable, and that's of course what the the heart of that interaction with. You know, the, the baby in a world where they are absolutely dependent on their parents and their mother. That's, that's, that's the framework in which it's happening, that is the thing, that is that's the first, one of the first things that will give you comfort is, is, is communication along this parameter. So I think um, I would like to know a lot more about that. We tend to think of communication as being something, well, faces and voices, but i would never thought about touch as being communicative before. But it it really is.
1: When people are hurt by someone else's actions, it's just very difficult for them to rediscover that uh, intimacy of Mm. touch. That becomes Mm. one of the things that it's very difficult to do again. That's one of the things that you lose. Yes. Uh, it it can be refabricated it remade but it's pretty difficult
0: mm. you know, mm.
1: it's you and, and i and i would imagine that actually it's it's probably the gestures of touch the the really simple things those, as you were saying there's those caring things the sort of just putting an arm around someone and and really as it were meaning it is probably you know that that's much more difficult to get back to if there's been some hurt than than other actually slightly more mechanical things like, you know, lovemaking or or sex. I think think the kind of the simpler gesture Mm. is really hard to find again, I think. And, of course, that's partly what this story is about because she, in the background of the stories, there's, there's this sense of losing your culture, coming to a cold place, and then not being able to find warmth. And that being human warmth. Yeah. And that being handed on in some peculiar way to the narrator of the story mm. who experiences this very strong sense of she would like to experience an offer warmth, but actually what she's doing is distancing herself and, mm. and finding this other person revolting
0: in yeah. some way. And she's cold. And she, she's she cold. She keeps being cold. Her fingers are, yeah. can't can feel things. Yeah, so it's... It was a very very beautiful.
1: She wrote four novels, I think, before she wrote *Small Island* in two thousand or so, and which um, won a lot of prizes and did very well. But she, she very sadly died at the age of sixty-two uh, of cancer. Um, but she was a remarkable, remarkable woman and a great writer. No, I we
0: read more.
1: So I think we've circumscribed the the, the territory of grief and sympathy. Quite fully, (laughs) and what we'll try and do is we'll try and find something cheery next time. We're back on the the humour and comedy communication trail.
0: Definitely, I was reading a paper today explaining that people who uh, American people don't find British humour very funny. Um, (laughs) Maybe we should go into thinking about the cultural influences on humour. There are there are some really basic. Uh, the scientific papers on this so it would be interesting to get your perspective as an otter. A... I would like that too. Let's do let's okay. do humour. Let's turn this shit round.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> the, the bright and sunny headland is not...
1: So maybe we'll look at that next time. In the meantime, thank you very much for listening. Um, this has been episode eight in season two so we're careering towards the conclusion and um, we'll be with you in a few weeks' time. So goodbye from me. And goodbye
0: from me.